0: course, the healthcare industry takes no responsibility for that, right? Because it's so narcissistic. It thinks that everything dollar that they could possibly use is necessarily the best use of that dollar. And until we're willing to fight back against that, I just don't see an end to the decay.
1: This is Christy Gupton, and I'm an employee benefits advisor. I understand how hard it is to embrace change when you have employees depending on you for a great health plan. This podcast is uniquely designed to answer your most pressing questions. Let's get right to it. 2060 sounds like a long time from now, a lifetime even. But no, it's only 37 years from now. That's nothing. As a matter of fact, looking back 37 years seems like it really wasn't that long ago. That would have been 1986. I mean, that was a time when things seemed pretty good. Reagan was president. The economy was thriving. Guns N' Roses got their first recording contract. Microsoft went public. And Tom Cruise inspires generations portraying a naval aviator in the movie Top Gun. Seriously, it seems like yesterday. So when we think about what the world will look like in another 37 years from today, What picture forms in our minds? Are we already seeing the signs of a future we aren't prepared for? Are we burying our heads in the sand and ignoring what needs to be done now to prevent what's coming? These questions need answers. Some of those answers lie in the pages of a new book titled 2060 by Dr. Richard Young. It's written as a novel but it offers a true-to-form prediction of what society will be like in the year 2060. When I read Dr. Young's book, things around me all of a sudden stood out to me as precursors of the dystopian future we may be headed for. When you read 2060, I bet you'll notice things that have been right under your nose for a while, but you'll suddenly see things with new eyes. The good news about a book like 2060 is that we still have time to alter our future for the better. Go to Amazon and search the numbers 2060. Go ahead and buy it for your holiday reading. After all the wrapping paper is cleaned up on Christmas Day, you'll have a great book to settle in with. So, let's talk to primary care doctor, Dr. Richard Young, author of the new book, 2060. Okay, welcome um, Dr. Richard Young, I'm so excited to talk about your new book uh, that has just been released. It's titled 2060. It's your glimpse into the future of what our healthcare system may look like, really, what our world looks like if we don't do something about healthcare now. So, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for taking so much of your precious time to read my book.
1: I loved it. It, it. it brought up a number of different emotions in me. First of all, you know, it kind of it was sobering. It, it made me really think about what was coming in the future. It also was sort of like a call to action. To If we intend to embrace transparency, we need to demand it now, you know, because I feel like the lack of transparency is really just allowing the, the largest corporate uh, players in our healthcare system to amass more and more wealth, continue their vertical integration, and all of that building of that empire is really just going to lead to more lack of transparency. And in your book, I I feel like that's sort of like the underlying theme. So before you you respond to that lack of transparency thing, I want to ask you about how you decided to write 2060 what inspired you and how did you decide that it was going to be an, um, a novel or you gave me a different term in our earlier conversations something like realistic dystopia you called it I think <laughs> so tell us a little more about the creative process that's so interesting.
0: Sure well for pretty much my whole career in medicine, and I've been doing this over 30 years now. Um, the the cost of healthcare has always bothered me, right? I mean, I wanted to be a doctor to to help people, and I like science, um, but I realized that the industry that I sort of signed up for was also bankrupting the country, and I didn't feel good about that. And so, I've I've wrestled with these issues for a long time. And so I wrote a nonfiction book that came out in 2012 called American Health Scare. There's a blog that goes with it. It's still, still up if people want to Google it. And basically for, for years, I kept throwing out facts and proposals and such to to try to get people to, to take the issue more seriously and realize that any dollar that goes into the healthcare industry, it really is mostly a zero-sum game. Those are dollars that could have gone to something else that brings happiness and peace and sustainability to our lives, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And I, as I reflected on it, I, I remembered lots of conversations I had over those years with people who are good people and they're smart people but they were just locked into the sort of american mentality about the expectations of sort of economic inputs and outputs that are just frankly wrong and that as i looked around the world at other systems and talked to gps from other countries i realized this is like an american problem this is other people who are smart and well meaning they they think different about these issues and i just came to the conclusion that the kind of arguments I was making um, for an American audience, though the, the big picture topics I talk about are going to affect the rest of the developed world. I mean, it's not just us who's going to deal with these long-term issues, but there, the, the, uh, there was an emotional block, right? The, the truths that I tried to talk to these people about were so against what they were used to hearing and so emotionally difficult for them to hear I realized that nonfiction was just not going to move the needle because I kept hitting this wall. And so, in 2015 is when I started this journey and I spent 2 years just trying to figure out what is a story? <laughs> Why do people listen to stories? You know, how do you write a novel? What are all the pieces that need to be in there? And so one of the principles that came out of my really just trying to start at the roots is that stories create empathy. And so what I'm really trying to do in 2060 is is force people who are in today's world to have more empathy for their kids and their grandkids and the plight that we are throwing them into because of decisions that we're making now. And so yeah, so as I got into it, I started writing it in 2017 and um just through drips and drabs and learning more about the process and having lots of nice people read some of my early work and give me feedback and I hired some professional editors cuz I knew okay, I'm I'm a novice at this. I I need help to make this the best product it can be. And um I, I did have the uh reassurance to myself that uh my there wasn't going to be a rush to the market. I mean, in other words, I didn't think there were ten other people trying to write a dystopian novel about our healthcare future. so I thought I had the luxury of time. and yeah, so it took me eight years to to get to a spot where I was happy with what I what I'd written and I thought I was conveying not only the, A factual message, but hitting some emotional notes that that needed to be in there for people to react to it. And yeah, so intellectually, this is the hardest thing I've ever done because basically I'm I'm a STEM nerd, right? I'm a math and science kind of guy, but I had to learn a whole new way of thinking about crafting a message and what what are the parts of a story that really cause people to have these emotional reactions and reflect on what i'm saying and so yeah it was just me still just obsessed with this idea that our country has been in this slow decay for pretty much my entire career and i see no end to it and i want a good future for my kids and grandkids and until unless we're willing to fight the beast uh, nothing's going to change
1: Oh I so agree with you. And in, in 8 years I didn't really focus on that when I was reading. 8 years you really saw in real life and in real time <laughs> the the kinds of uh decay that or or you know just things going in a downward spiral um I wonder if you you recollect any any a couple of instances where you were like you know what if this keeps happening The other thing is going to happen, you know, 50 years from now.
0: Well, uh, let me put it this way. I, uh, a lot of my professional work has, uh, I'm a researcher. I publish in the traditional peer-reviewed academic medical literature. And some of my studies have been projections into the future Uh, showing the impact of how healthcare costs are directly decrease your personal income because money's getting sucked into the healthcare industry instead of going to your pocket. And it's just a constant dribble, right? You've got this company that is outsourcing some part of its workforce really because they don't want to pay for the healthcare benefits of those people anymore. And so they outsource it to a company that provides no benefits. And then you hear the stories of how that affected those people's lives and how they got screwed in that deal. Uh, you hear stories of um, teacher ratios getting worse because the public school system doesn't have enough money to pay for the teachers it wishes it could have. It it hires people who don't have education degrees because they're just looking for anybody who, who thinks they're willing to, teach a kid and put them through some quickie educational psychology workshop and then cut them loose on, on the kids, right? So um, rusty bridges that aren't getting repaired because there's no money in the public coffers because a lot of the money that was there 30 years ago got sucked into the healthcare industry. And so now someday a bridge will collapse. And what, two years ago, three years ago that you know one of the interstates Bridges in um, in Pennsylvania collapsed. One in Minneapolis, I believe it was collapsed, right? Yep. So yeah, that so that's a zero sum game problem. Is is um, you know having a bridge collapse is also going to affect your happiness and your sense <laughs> yeah. of safety and well being. But one of the important reasons that that bridge didn't get fixed earlier is because your your county government, your state government, your employer kept spending more and more money on your behalf for, to go into the healthcare industry instead of going into your pocket or, or other societal goods where that money could have been used. And so it's just, you know, I I'd like to think I came into this with an open mind and open eyes and I was just able to connect the dots. And I, and I would, when I would have conversations with people, we talk about, diverting inflation curves, okay, so here's the growth of workers' wages over time, and here's the you know, cost of healthcare over time, and they're, they're widely divergent lines. Uh, I just realized a lot of people would look at those and go, okay, yeah, that's sad. And I, I see misery. I see people struggling. I see more and more people living paycheck to paycheck. I see more and more people uh, being scared because it's a choice of, do I survive or do I go without insurance? And then and then thinking through all the worst case scenarios and the anxiety and the depression that that builds. And of course, the healthcare industry takes no responsibility for that, right? Because it's so narcissistic, it thinks that everything, dollar that they could possibly use is necessarily the best use of that dollar and until we're willing to fight back against that i just don't see an end to the decay
1: right and i think a lot of us that maybe um have a little knowledge but not enough about what's really going on behind the scenes we may succumb to the gaslighting that the industry does when we start to speak up and say but what about you know all this money that's being spent then those players in the status quo that are profiting you know from the current system they they almost like box us into a corner and gaslight us and make us feel like we're wrong for even speaking up so i just think it's really that's another one of the takeaways that i think that what people hopefully Anyone who's listening um, has already put 2060 on their um, list for what they're going to look for when they go book shopping again soon. Because um, that—that's a takeaway that you need: is you—you you can't succumb to the prevalent opinions um, of the big corporate players because you, you may not have the ability to fight back against that and, and use the knowledge that you have, um, uh, to prevent that gaslighting. So you, you need to learn, um, things now. And that's one of the things with the main character of your story, his name is Willis Smith. Will Smith is, uh, <laughs> uh certainly a, a cute name, but, um, one that has, uh, meaning these days, but he, in trying to navigate the healthcare system on behalf of his mom, I felt like he almost had a little hopelessness because he didn't really have enough knowledge to um, to know how things were working behind the scenes. And he certainly had some experience having experienced this, this system um, trying to take care of his mom, but he just didn't know everything he needed to know. To make sure that um, he had the autonomy that he needed to make decisions and have better outcomes, but I, I just thought lack of knowledge is a real serious problem here. We we not enough of us know how the healthcare system really functions. Um, we're not we're not digging deep enough to see where all of the dollars are going.
0: Well, and on top of that, even when he had some knowledge, like in the very first chapter and his mom is not looking too hot he knew what the problem was and he knew that the solution was actually pretty low tech but the system said no we're not going to manage this the way you want in an affordable low tech kind of a way we have guidelines we have standards we have rules and how we follow our algorithms and if we deviate them at all then we get Ding for having poor quality care, and of course we want high quality care. And so, if right. you don't let us send your mother to the ER, we're going to kick her out of the nursing home because you're going to make right. So he he knew at the disease level what needed to happen, but then he fought against the system, and the system forced him into this this um, inefficient, expensive choice. That he didn't want to make, but he was powerless to do anything about it.
1: Right. It's that powerlessness that really spoke to me. And, and you're right, he had a lot of knowledge based on his experience, but it's the the system that we don't realize that if we don't if we don't stop some of the vertical integration that's happening right now, or at least curtail it, we're all going to be in a similar powerless position. one of the things I wrote down, uh, was the word empire, (laughs) um, and, and this big corporate building up of, of their assets and resources into this, um, you know, sort of empire, I did feel the sense that, um, basic citizens are, um, sort of losing their autonomy, losing their ability to affect the outcomes that, that, are good for them, which would also lead to a a more simpler, cleaner, sort of easier existence if, based on, you know, what you just said, what if I don't want high-tech solutions? What if I want to be led by a a personal physician uh, on speed dial? This is a little tagline that I use a lot. So, if I have a relationship with my primary care physician and it's a close and connected and and codependent relationship too. Hopefully that relationship is so strong that it leads me to making um more sensible decisions and not just simply giving me access to the big healthcare smorgasbord, the the buffet mentality, right? I would mm-hmm. I would much rather live a much more simple life eating clean and healthy foods, having um you know, a, a good mental state about my place and then my station in life, <laughs> and you know the the big corporate mentality. It seems like it always leads you down a path to being caught up in this empire that they have amassed. And I I just feel like I I'd, I'd love to encourage people to take a much more simple but sensible uh, role in the healthcare system. So I'm sure you have some thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit as to your own attitudinal differences compared to lots of Americans. So let let me respond at two levels. So one is, uh, to me, a high-value family doctor, whether that be through a DPC model or, or other models, is going to be someone who has an attitude and comes from a culture that is different from mainstream American medicine, as it's taught in American medical schools, and reinforced by Medicare and all the big insurance companies and yada, yada, yada. And that is one where the pinnacle of being a doctor is memorizing every single stinking rare disease that could possibly cause whatever. And at the very first opportunity ordering every single stinking test and referring you to see nine other doctors for every little thing that bubbles up because they are obsessed with this idea that early detection is going to make all this big difference when in fact a lot of times they going to make any difference. And so reading between the lines, I bet you when you have, let's say you wake up one day and your back hurts and it's really bothering you and you call up your personal doctor on speed dial and you talk it out Maybe, maybe not. He, he even needs to see you. I mean, that's a judgment call here. She's going to have to make. But at the end of the day, if that person does not just assume that more technology equals better care, then they might say, you know what? It sounds like you just pulled a muscle. I want not you to try this, that, and the other? Give it a week or two. And then if something changes, we can rethink it but let's not assume that rushing you off to the mri machine and the neurosurgeon's office is going to improve your health right so you you are a partner in a new attitude about what a healthcare system is even supposed to provide for you in the first place and the next answer is what i would love to see happen and i really talk about this more in american healthcare is to take people like you and and group them together in an insurance pool. So, in, in ideal, it's it's a non profit insurance, like the way the rest of the world does it. Um, so I'm not I'm not trying to take away an option from anybody. If an American says nope, I don't care about that attitude. I want to see the specialist at every possible drop that I demand, and I want the most expensive medicine that's the newest because it must be better. I'm not trying to take that option away from people. I'm just saying, okay, you people who have that attitude, you go pool yourselves in a risk pool over there, and then let's take the people like you who have a much more, uh, let's say, suspicious attitude about the benefits of the healthcare industry, and we put you in a different pool, and then the cost difference will be huge, and then you will have more money because it's not going to the healthcare industry. And you can use it to not live paycheck to paycheck. You can use it to buy a car that's less likely to break down, to go on a vacation, to all the other things that bring happiness and peace and health to your life that have nothing to do with the healthcare industry. So yeah, so what I do in the novel is I present a a fictionalized way that a group of Americans could possibly pull something like this off, but be kind of under the radar and, and do it in a way where the the, the lawyers, the police, the the Medicare um, regulators, the insurance company people don't it, it's hidden from them for at least for a while.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that you portrayed in the book, I already saw it in my own little town. So in your book, fast forward several decades some of the uh larger more um affluent neighborhoods have been turned into almost like apartment buildings but they didn't necessarily change the layout of the 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 nice uh big home people uh like your main character just rent a room in what was you, you know uh, an affluent neighborhood and instead of having a a beautiful green front yard and lots of gorgeous landscaping that's pleasing to the eye, the the front yards have been paved over and turned into parking lots. Because obviously, if you rent a room in an eight-bedroom house to eight different people, they're going to have to have their own transportation, right? (laughs) So, Dr. Young, I was driving through my little town in Western North Carolina last week, and I saw it happen. I mean, it was already paved over, and there were you know, four to six vehicles parked in what otherwise would have been a grassy green front yard. So you're not far off in the way you've portrayed 2060 in your book. Uh, some of it is already happening. So you know, I think that um, aside from reading your book to get inspiration, what else can people do? today in 2023 to help prevent um, what might occur in 2060 if they do nothing today.
0: Uh, well the journey's difficult and there's several sort of attitudinal shifts that I think people need to take. First of all, you have to realize that even your local hospitals, your local doctors aren't necessarily your friend in this okay they're they're going to want to hold on to the system we have. They're going to want to hold on to the local the payment structure that's been sort of locked in by Medicare and the insurance companies, and what they value and what they don't value, and 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 fundamentally start to revalue uh, what is most important in a healthcare system um, on a really um, fifty thousand foot view. The the difficult truth that I I hope people um, can get to is to realize that there's basically a one and a half trillion dollar slush fund sitting out there in this country of how much more we spend in the healthcare industry than every other developed country in the world. And the challenge is for us to tap into that, that could be used for all kinds of other purposes. It could be used to hire more teachers. It could be used to fix potholes in the road. It could be used to, what I hope we would really focus on, pay down the annual budget deficit, so we're not robbing from our kids' futures by these horrible budget deficits that we run every year. Uh, If you're into green things, you could pay for more green energy. There's all kinds of other uses for that money, but to access it, We, as individual citizens of this country, have to confront our fear of pain and death. And that is a thing that every other country has pulled off, at least to some degree, that we haven't. And it it is that serious, it is that difficult, but if at least enough collectives of people could start to be willing to really think outside the box and And think of it as more of a a collective effort where everybody makes some sacrifices to create a better system, then that's what it's going to take to really fight back against the machine. And I realize how difficult that is. But on the other hand, it's got a the journey has to start with the first step. And I think there's lots of ways that local environments could could shape their own beginnings of that journey. And I say, um, let's think of this as a big, complex adaptive system and let the frontline agents start to innovate and let's get the the regulators and the the moneyed interest off their backs to let them innovate and then just see what happens and then and encourage a, a complete divorce from the existing payment regulatory rules that we're so trapped in right now.
1: Well said, you know, I'm, I'm not, I guess I shouldn't be embarrassed to admit, I have a fear of the unknown and death is something that's unknown, at least to me. I'm still alive, so I can fear the unknown. But I also look at other countries like you have. You spent a lot of uh, time and, and treasure looking at other countries. Um, civilizations, other countries, how do they do things? I, I look at the the blue zones on the world map, right? Mm-hmm. Okinawa, Japan, Costa Rica, Sardinia, Italy. There's, there's like five blue zones. And I'm thinking, okay, these are the zones on the map that researchers have identified where people actually live the longest. So if they're like me and they fear death, well, they, they are... <laughs> They're doing something about their own longevity, um, and so they can experience all that life has, um, to offer all you know, maybe 100 and ho- or 110 years of it in the blue zones. If no one's ever heard of that before, um, they just have such a um, low stress, low tech, and also a lifestyle that almost like lives off the land. I don't know, I feel like this race towards corporate competitiveness and and that even manifests itself in the small town uh, local levels you know even even those entities feel like they're competing against their neighbors in in one way or another and instead of continuing to try to vertically integrate or amass this empire you know maybe it's it's better to sort of act like <laughs> you know you're an okinawan and you and your main goal for the day is to catch enough fish to have for dinner that night i mean i'm not trying to be unrealistic here but i'm just thinking there are ways that we as individuals can simplify our lives and 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 by default create more longevity um so that if you want to embrace everything that life has to offer um not worry about you know, your death, death, because you just mentioned it. That's one of the things that so many of us um, fixate on, that healthcare smorgasbord buffet mentality isn't going to help us live more uh, longer, happier, more productive, more fulfilled lives. Maybe just a, um, a peeling back of so much of this complexity that we've uh, taken in, is it's it's better to just live a little more simply. So those are my thoughts.
0: Yeah, I agree. But I bet if also if you if you hung out with those, let's say, 93 year olds in one of those places who, I don't know, walk, walk to the well each day to get their water and, you know, pick the olives out of their orchard or I mean, whatever they're doing. Right. I bet their knees hurt and I bet their back hurts. And. That's but that's the other contribution that they're making to a sustainable system is they go, you know what, I'm 93, it's supposed to hurt. And exactly. I don't expect the healthcare industry to take away all my pain. I don't expect the healthcare industry to keep me alive till I'm 125. I accept that getting older means things are going to start falling apart and I don't want to be miserable. But I also know that I have to be realistic in my expectations of what life is like, and so in the um, my I think one of the things that I've done that I mean honestly I can't think of any other models of this really. But I there is a nonfiction afterward in my novel um, where I talk about the factual under uh, underpinnings of frankly kind of why i wrote the novel the way i did and it just struck me that story just in pain is when i was hanging out with uh dr stokes lampard in england and she went to see one of her elderly patients the the patient said I, my belly is hurting and it feels it hurts as bad as when i was in labor now, I don't believe it actually hurt that bad because it's not like she was sitting in bed, you know, going. Yeah. Okay. But it hurt a lot. And then when the doctor was examining her, there were some places she pushed and she she cried out. Well, she had basically put up with that pain all night long. And uh, another resident of this, let's call it like an assisted living kind of a facility. um had sat with her just to comfort her, and they waited till the afternoon for her personal doctor to come see her. And then the doctor said, oh, yeah, this is looking like it could be something bad. And so she wrote a letter to the surgeon at the hospital, because this is how the British people do. They write these very polite letters to each other. And two hours later, the ambulance showed up. And fortunately, the lady, it was something that wasn't, you know, life-threatening or whatever. But the point is that the patient, the moment the pain started getting bad, the patient did not expect the system to make that pain go away immediately, right? So to some degree, getting older, having pains is part of life, and she wanted to tap into that relationship that she had with her GP, because there was a huge amount of trust there that built up over years and years of of doing high quality work and and by by implication the patient was accepting a tiny degree of risk she was accepting a tiny degree of well yeah in theory if this has gotten if it is something really bad and i was seen a few hours earlier maybe that would have changed the outcome right so she the patient made a sacrifice so that the system works for everybody and that is the mentality that i think is a constant theme in all these other countries that i've visited and and i'm not saying the citizenry even is that aware of it but it's very clear sometimes they are sometimes they're they're very they're they're very clear about yeah i realized that this this thing might have helped my mother just a little bit but look i mean there's lots of other people that needed it more than my mother, right? I mean, how many Americans talk like that, right? But that those are stories that I heard from just Joe and Jane Cube, um, British citizen, as I was asking them about their healthcare service. And that, to me, is where this sort of even American business model of a solution falls short. Because when I hear cons- your typical consultant or pundit about where you need to go, the, what I find is that the business slash finance people, they're, they're absolutely right in that they recognize American health or cost too much, but their solutions are just applying the tools of business. And it ultimately so many of their sort of final uh, destinations, let's say, is and we need to please the customer, right? The customer wants care faster. The customer once everything done as conveniently as possible, when they want it, how they want it, right? Because this is how you sell more hamburgers and dresses, right? Mm-hmm. You you you're pleasing the customer. That cannot be the solution to come up with a more affordable healthcare system. Because just as you've actually sort of mentioned, you've been willing to change your attitude about what a system should even provide and it's that kind of personal attitudinal change and frankly sacrifice that will be required to actually fight back against the healthcare industry. And this is where I think as I listen to these more business oriented people talk, this is the 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 thing that I don't think they get because they are because the tools that they bring to the table are about pleasing customers and that is not going to get the job done.
1: Right? the the thing that i've heard um or seen in social media outlets that dr keith smith is talking about um lately is the fact that we don't have enough physician owned hospitals anymore um you're right like you just said the it's the business um driving the hospital to to do certain things or perform uh, a certain way it's it's all related to um uh the business aspect of healthcare and i think that since the affordable care act was passed which is i think what was the beginning of the decline of the physician owned hospital i could be corrected on that i i might not have my history right but um that's what i think i remember reading uh since that time We've seen an increase in the cost of care for sure, and a, a reduction in better outcomes. Usually, it's just more expensive outcomes. So um, that might be uh, another good takeaway. That you know, the returning of the physician to the the leadership position in in today's hospitals, and it might not be able to be the big ones. It might have to be the the you know the small rural hospitals that can be physician led. Maybe physician owned is not the the right term, but physician led. So that way, you know we're making more clinical decisions as opposed to business decisions. Um, You probably have to. Well, certainly,
0: doctors, especially all the ologists, are a big part of the problem, and. Doctors can be bad business people. And you know, a lot of doctors, probably me too, have big egos. And so, so yeah, we we need help in managing systems and organizations and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, but I definitely think that the grand failure of Obamacare was that it allowed the creation of these huge, massive integrative networks and like you said, we can see glimpses of 2060 already. And so you look at what's happening in Pittsburgh with UPMC and how much they dominate that market. And you have like teachers unions suing to try to come up with some other alternatives to have their care less expensive, but they're fighting the machine. You look at Boston and the the heavy footprint of the Harvard Pilgrim system and uh, and so Massachusetts, of course, passed this law that they were going to basically monitor the health care costs of these insurance, insurance and in big systems and have some control. Well, that's been a complete failure because of the political and economic clout of these these huge systems. And so I saw some estimates that basically healthcare in Boston costs 20 percent more than it should just compared to other American standards because of the market clout of this huge integrated system that obamacare allowed to form. And so obamacare basically it wasn't innovative enough, it wasn't disruptive enough. They they cuz they're using the same codes, the same insurance companies, the same rules, the same regulations on insurance and hospitals and everything else. And so a lot of times when I have these kind of discussions with people in the business world, you know, they they'll talk in sort of generalities about you know, lowering the cost. And, and my question to them is, is often, okay, yeah, but what's the goal, right? I mean, are we trying to just bend the cost curve? Are we trying to knock down the total cost by 10%, 20%, 30%? I mean, where, where are we trying to head here? And for me, the goal should be we should look like the rest of the world. And <laughs> that means cut our total cost by about a third, and that is just going to take a massive disruption in terms of everything how how it's financed how 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 it's managed um who controls the money all that stuff that ultimately um even the employers aren't aren't going to be the solution it needs to be employers in concert with their employees right the 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 John and Jane Q American citizen need to be willing to make a really difficult attitudinal shift in what they expect out of the healthcare industry to effectively fight back and bring our costs more in line with the rest of the world. So yeah, if you're just trying to, you know, cut the inflation rate from whatever, 7% to 6%, then yeah, some of these, you know, get a new vendor Um, get a better contract, you know, that kind of business financing oriented stuff can probably achieve that. But if you want a massive reset in the place of the healthcare industry in our lives, it's going to be super difficult. But I think the solution is most likely to come from bubbling up from uh, locations, local, and I don't know if that means a city level, a county level, a state level, but it's going to take a complete rethink of patients, of citizens, to really pull this off. And that that's what I hope people get. Uh, let me just say this. if—if if, I mean, there, there's some technical stuff, certainly in the nonfiction part. But if, if, if people reading this can at least come away with this idea that, you know what, any dollar that goes into the healthcare industry is a dollar that does not go into other things that make my life good. Then I, I then I think I accomplished what I set out to do, and then if you can tolerate it, but there's lots of other difficult truths that are that are packaged in here where I, I I hope I give people other visions of what a solution might look like.
1: Yeah, the I think the only place where I'll part ways with you on comparing us to the rest of the world is the control, uh, and I agree that the employers play such an important role here. Um, and they, this, we're all in this together mentality. That's not a bad thing at the, at the, you know, individual employer level, or maybe those who participate in health shares, the, the kinds of, um, organizations or, or pooling mechanisms that we've We've done just to make sure that the money is spent wisely. And some of those pooling mechanisms are absolutely not interested in uh, spending money wisely. But if we can maintain autonomy and personal control and not give that up to government entities, I'd love to see that happen where where you know the opposite has happened in other countries, uh to some extent, not all of them. I, I love what you're saying there. Um in in your book i think that what's really helpful to know is that as diverse as our population is you I mean we have all kinds of skin colors all kinds of you know ethnic backgrounds that are you know right here in the melting pot that we call the united states many of those different cultures experience our healthcare system very differently i, I won't give away uh the writing of, and and what you're, the story that you're trying to tell, I'm not going to give those uh, um, give those things away, but I think it is going to be interesting for the people who read your book, those who really want to take the resources that are right there at their fingertips and do the right thing with it, but then, you know, that doesn't necessarily fit the definition of what the system or the government deems what they should have done with those resources, and so that's, I think that's the only place I, w- I want to go in a different direction with you on what you just said. I just, I like the idea that we levelize the cost because it's true, and we see this especially in pharmaceuticals, like um, a pretty common everyday medicine in um, other countries, even, even our border countries, uh, is at over-the-counter type prices, pennies on the dollar. But we as Americans pay through the nose for it. If we could levelize the cost without giving up personal control, or at least maintaining some sort of personal responsibility, maybe that's the better way to describe it, uh, as opposed to control. If you if you do better with your own personal responsibility, maybe no one has to take it over.
0: Um, well, I, I really don't think we're that far apart. So let me let, let's take talk about drug prices. So so the thing. That every other developed country in the world does, and to me, the Brits are the most transparent about this through their agency called the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, or NICE is the acronym, is they say, we have to live within a budget. And we are willing to consider any new drug, device, whatever, to be part of what we provide our citizens, but we are not going to let you bankrupt us. And so a drug company comes to them and says, "We here's our drug and here's a study that shows it works. And we want to charge you blah, blah pounds per dose or per year or whatever. The Brits have the courage to go, all right, this drug meets our guidelines. We'll pay for it. And so, sorry, we're just not going to buy it. And, and it could be like an not, not just like the, the ninth ACE inhibitor or diuretic or something. This is like it could be a completely brand new class of drug. But the Brits say if we spend all of these resources for this drug that'll provide this tiny little marginal benefit to a few people, then though that's money that we can't spend for everybody else, and so it violates our 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 sense of fairness to everybody, so we are not going to to buy that drug. Well, but here's how the British people support that. The the patients who potentially might have benefited from that horribly expensive drug are not going out on the streets and protesting, for the most part, right? I mean, there's exceptions, but but basically, they, they accept that people who are smart and have these very difficult jobs to make these difficult decisions are doing what they're paid to do, and they accept their decisions, and the politicians accept their decisions, and they don't muck into the details. And they don't let stories mess up their system of like one person who has a sad case and isn't it tragic that this was, oh, and look, the Brits won't pay for this drug that might cure the whatever, right? They, they're more like, you know what? Um, you're free to travel to another country and pay for it yourself. But it is not fair to everybody else that you suck up all these resources. And it's that level of commitment to each other and making a personal sacrifice for the good of the whole. That is what's required, in my opinion, to get to a more sustainable, fairer system.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I know a lot of people who have these discussions in um, end of life, so, you know, types of subjects like this is really what need probably needs to be discussed in the Medicare realms. Um, because Medicare ends up spending, you know, 10x in the last few months of life, as opposed to what was spent in all of the other years that that person was on Medicare. So from, say, from like age 65 to age 90, it was one cost structure. But then if that, that data suggests that if the person lived to age 92, the amount of cost layout that was spent in the last few, few years or last few months, really, of life was just drastically higher. Um, I know. I feel like what you're talking about is a really appropriate conversation, at least to start with, in um, end of life circles. You know, because we're just grasping at things that um, will just keep our loved ones on earth just a little bit longer, and. Uh, <laughs> maybe no, that's
0: I, not I agree. what we should be talking about. No, I totally agree end of life is a place that we need to do it but it's even before that. So so like there's drugs in the US that might cost 10-20 grand a year and increase your life expectancy by a few weeks. And so the Brits say it's not worth it. We're just not going to spend that money on that. So it's, so it's, 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 my point is it's, it's, it's not just the end of life issues. It's the whole spectrum.
1: Agreed. And, you know, some of these drugs, we have no idea of knowing how they may create a a lack of longevity. I mean, right now in this country, we're talking a whole lot about these semaglutide GLP-1 injectables for, uh, to treat obesity. And we just don't know how that might affect kidneys or livers or brains or whatever <laughs> 20 years, 30 years down the road. But um, everyone is clamoring for these drugs. And when I feel like just a much more healthy lifestyle, maybe some intermittent fasting in there and some metformin and, and you know, uh, much more rigorous, consistent exercise would have the same outcomes than these drugs that are just just being wildly taken up. Uh, there's so, so much uptake in these that there's a shortage, and that's causing the supply and demand problem that we're seeing today.
0: Oh, yeah. And the cost effectiveness of those would be just horrible. I mean, the bang for the buck is just going to be awful. So... But yeah, but, yeah, but our, our payers, our regulators don't have the courage to say no. And so they'll they'll putz around with it for a while. Actually, th- you know, this might be a tipping point. I mean, uh, uh, we've been fooled so many times over my career of, oh, okay, now we're going to get serious about this, and we don't. So I'm actually fascinated to see how this will play out. Because this, as much as anything in the past, really does confront... How much are you willing to spend for a certain outcome?
1: Well, Dr. Young, um, I hope we have inspired lots of people to go buy your book and read it. Where can they find it?
0: It's on all the major outlets, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. If you want to go to the original publisher, it's called Wild Lark Books, and um, you can buy it there. And so, yeah, it's uh, print, Kindle, all all the major types. So uh, look forward to... uh, people reading it and um you know love to get their feedback
1: sure and if they have feedback for you where should they contact you Uh,
0: my blog is um it's called american health scare and um there's ways to contact me through that or um um actually i have a side private practice so there you actually if you can't find other ways you can actually send me a message through that so yeah love to help people be able to confront these difficult truths and come up with their own local solutions for a massive problem.
1: Well, I think you have started a very healthy conversation, um, even if it's in uh, nonfiction. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, I mean, fiction. So anyway, thank you so much for joining me today on Healthcare Solutions. I wish you the very best and lots and lots and lots of book sales. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our important discussion. For more information about the work we do at Custom Benefits Solutions, visit our website at custombenefits.work.